And welcome to Next Reads, a podcast where we read the first chapter of a young adult or middle grade book to help you figure out what to read next. This podcast might contain language or situations some readers might find offensive or unsettling. The North Liberty Library does not necessarily endorse any author's views, but it does support the freedom of speech and the freedom to read. I'm your host, Kayla, the Youth and Teen Services Librarian at the North Liberty Library. My pronouns are she and her. Welcome, listeners. Hello. Today, I'm going to be reading from Apple, Skin Decor, by Eric Gansworth, which is his English name, and Sawen Nase, and he is an enrolled Onodaga writer and visual artist raised in the Tuscanora Nation. And his award-winning books include If I Ever Get Out of Here, Give Me Some Truth, and Extra Indians. And he's a professor and a lowery writer in resident at a college. So Apple Skin to Core is a nonfiction book. Yay, nonfiction if you really like nonfiction. And if you're hesitant, I always highly recommend reading some nonfiction books. You learn so much and they can also be so much fun. It is Native American Heritage Month for Indigenous people. And this book is a young adult nonfiction book that came out in 2020. And it's a memoir in verse where the author traces his family's heritage through generations. So here is the summary from the front flap. The term apple is a slur in native communities across the country. It's for someone supposedly red on the outside, white on the inside. Eric Gansworth is telling his story in Apple Skin Decor, the story of his family, of Onodega among the Tuscanoras, of native folks everywhere, from the horrible legacy of the government boarding schools to a boy watching his siblings leave and return and leave again to a young man fighting to be an artist who straddles two worlds. Eric shatters that slur and reclaims it in verse and prose and imagery that truly lives up to the word, heartbreaking. Some content warnings are alcohol, smoking, animal death, violence, genocide, and anti-indigenous slurs. Please take care of yourself first. If you do decide to pick up this book, I highly recommend looking at all of the imagery and the visuals in this book. They are breathtaking. And as I said, it's written in verse, so it's broken up into poetry. So I will do the title of the poem, and then I'll read the poem. And we'll read about 15 to 20 pages. Okay, let's get started. Apple Records. We say we want a revolution. Well, we know you all want to change the world. We tell you that it's evolution. Well, we know you all want to change the world. But when we talk about reconstruction, don't I know that I can count you out? Uncle Tomahawk hangs around the fort until he finds his own metaphor. Some Indians feel that to spend too much time among white people is to risk losing everything we call our own. Even though the idea is itself loosely defined, sometimes we borrow from other Indians and sometimes, like that $10 we asked for when we were desperate, we forget what we've borrowed until we are reminded. Socials and powwows bring us together because they celebrate all the ways we maintain our ways of life. We know the dances and the songs, the exact rhythm patterns for drums and rattles. But we've borrowed dances from other nations. We have no alligators in the Northeast. 
no real-world example to borrow in, creating these moves, and yet, Alligator Dance has been with us for so long, it feels like ours, free and clear. Even our singers, who know the songs best, have lost the words to some, reduced to memorizing sound. When patterns and syllables are all you have, you go with them and pass them down to the next group of young people willing to sit and learn beside you on the social bench, knowing they'll just be rough, knowing they're going to misstep on the floor where we dance. This is no game, but even as we keep our own sounds and borrow from other Indians, we sometimes snag our metaphors from others and our relationships to them until we find the right ones to call our own and memorize them. As a reminder of what we risk, spending too much time with white people, some Indians who have never read Harriet Beecher Stowe or who can't give you any details about Uncle Tom as a character, know what the name means, how the tomahawk will always sign Indian, and how the uncle is never a true relative here. We pride ourselves on being clever with originality, and we know that Uncle Tom is already a knife-sharp slur for the same behavior within a different group. They have their own history of being tortured and killed by white people, their own struggles with the nuances of the individual life. Some Indians next come up with hang around the fort Indian. The fort was designed to give white people shelter and sustenance when they need a break from taming the West by killing Indians directly or wiping out the original food sources so Indians would starve on their own without the fort's residents bloodying their own hands but it was a name born of stories invoking real Indians hanging around with real white soldiers, hoping to find secrets to surviving the onslaught, braving direct contact while others waited and starved. While we could laugh about weapons and forts, no one invoked Carlisle Hampton and all the ways the boarding schools changed us forever. No metaphor encompasses our wiped memories and families, skin intact because no bleach would make us white enough to disappear entirely. But one day, some Indian finally bit an apple, exposed the blinding white flesh inside, contrast vibrating against broken red skin. Like Sir Isaac Newton, after insight hit in falling fruit, they recognized the perfect label for Indians, not sharp enough to make it all the way home, left in that space between two places, red on the outside, white on the inside, forever locked away from both worlds, separated by the thinnest membrane. Boarding School Philosophy, Shorter, Simplified Edition, Practical Application. Problem, Indians and communities will reproduce in both form and idea if offspring cannot be stopped, disrupt culture. Solution one, kill them all or remove all available food sources. Solution two, destabilize group identity by making group land base illegal. Solution three, where land base exists, sterilize fertile adults under the guise of current helpful medical care until they vanish on their own, unaware. Solution four, remove present juvenile offspring, incarcerate them long enough to open possibilities for future manual labor resources. To minimize bloodshed, call incarceration institution a school. Convince parents this is an opportunity of a lifetime for juvenile offspring. If students attempt to return, and they will, and attempt to procreate with their own kind, and they will, the remnants of their culture will be so small, so fragmented, they will have no choice but to build new lives drawn from the available current cultural resources. Optimally, 
within two generations, those slivers of their old culture will be so small they cannot thrive, and assimilation will be complete. Uncontrollable variables, those who decline the opportunity of incarceration, the presence of mirrors and the capacity for insight. Long-range plan, repeat as necessary, revisit in two generations' time, adjust accordingly. Hello, my name is one. It begins with your great-grandparents having five children, Leander, Orismus, Howard, Alberta, Willard. They wonder how they will divide the reservation land in their name among them if all five can make it as farmers. That profession seems like their only prospect in Niagara County. At the beginning of the 12th century, where the reservation and the settlements surrounding it do not mix much, worlds immeasurably far apart from each other despite minimal miles. One day, a man shows up with the opportunity of a lifetime, he says, offering an introduction to the world beyond the borders, should they need it at some time. As an aside, he assures them their children will need it. The school would cost the family nothing, and the children would learn, in a military-style environment, useful trades and insider secrets of American life not available within the reservation's confines. Wanting to give all their children that opportunity, they agree to send them to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, 300 miles away. The school, understanding the hardship of travel, offers a summer outing program so the children do not have to come home. If they are good enough, they will be placed with white families working off their board as labor, all the while learning that paler life day in and day out. They do not seem to understand that the only life learned will be how to work for white people. Expenses deducted from their pay for the rooms they sleep in after work, food they eat at these houses while indentured for summer months between the school years for five calendar years. Five years was the optimal amount of time school officials believed it would take for children to find it impossible to rejoin their old lives. Five years away would assure their discomfort in places they'd left, offering them option one to try to assimilate. This was not included in the sales pitch for free education, of course. The school, founded by a military man, Richard Henry Pratt, had an explicit mission, kill the Indian, save the man. Pratt, so delighted in proclaiming this anywhere else he spoke of the place, he never noticed that his proudest achievement began with the word kill. It can be safely assumed that the school representative also failed to include this philosophy in the pitch. You might ask, what Indian parents would allow their children out the door and across the border with strangers destined to arrive at a place whose sole purpose was to strip them of everything they had been, a place designed to kill the only culture they knew and replace it with something else. Of the five children, two never returned to their home territories. One arrived near home, staying on the periphery, living out his life 30 miles away, and two came back and reacquainted themselves with the lives they had almost lost, marrying young women from home, starting families, and keeping our name going forward. I wonder how, of the five, my grandfather was one of the two who successfully came back home, and I am nosy enough to ask people until I find the answer. Carlisle, an abandoned military barracks, from the beginning, had been the perfect breeding ground for infectious diseases. Indian children were dormed, four beds to each cramped room, and for hundreds of early students, the last room they ever lived in. Exposed to diseases from England and Europe, in a few short bursts, a staff member sneeze, a cough, 
droplets spreading in those tiny four-person rooms, these students became bodies that had never been exposed and caught tuberculosis. They learned all the ravages it could cause inside those balls. They learned they were allowed to die there, and they learned to be buried in unmarked mass graves near the school, sometimes dismembered and dissected in the name of Western medicine. They learned to become nameless skeletons who, even now, linger in dusty drawers of libraries and museums in eastern Pennsylvania, not afforded the liberty celebrated in the cracked bell a short distance away. Their current custodians not wanting to admit their part in keeping these bones from their homelands, even if that part just means keeping their own mouths shut. The motto, kill the Indian, kill the man, was maybe close enough for Pratt and his school. You wonder how long this practice would have continued had those parents not came looking for their children who'd stopped writing them monthly letters from their promised new world place, new world life, new world chance for survival. By the time my grandfather arrived at Carlisle, those unmarked graves were filled to capacity. When he began coughing, he was sent back to the reservation to recuperate with assurances he could resume his education if and when he recovered from the disease his education had exposed him to, infecting him with the old world in his new world off and on, he went and returned, continuing to grow ill, then recovering at home, heading back to school with his siblings, models of success. As he built up his resistance to new diseases, he also developed resistance to walking away from the world where his roots lay, growing deeper and tougher with each trip back to his homestead, where his parents worried about their children who left and their children who returned. His repeated visits back allowed him to build up immunities to the school itself and followed his desire to come home and start a family. Two, my grandfather died so many years before I was born. His life is a collection of stories people told over our dining room table. In my life, I've seen three fleeting images, some now stored only in my memory. The first photo was lost when our family home exploded in a ridiculous accident decades later, where almost everything we'd accumulated for over a hundred years went up in a 30-minute inferno, including the one photo of him, as a small child, barely able to keep his balance. He had very long hair past his shoulder blades, and if the photo had not been a sepia tintype, if he had not been wearing a traditional ribbon shirt, I would swear the baby in the photo was my brother, learning to walk, gripping a chair leg to steady himself, as his journey begins, one step at a time. The second photo is my grandfather at Carlisle, revealing nothing more to the photographer than his new identity, nothing more than he had to. When children arrived at the school, they discovered their packed bags irrelevant. Their hair was cut, traditional clothes swapped for military uniforms, moccasins for boots. They had no way of knowing, climbing on those trains to Carlisle, or Hampton, or Haskell, or any of the other 397 schools that even before those scissors came out, many had to check their identities and anything that made them Indians at the gate. Like overcoats, their host considered a hindrance. If your name was too traditional, you were forced to choose a new one from a list of acceptable American names. Wall mounted in the room where they were inducted, their first forced act in becoming someone else. After you'd been wiped clean of the only name you'd ever known, Next came your clothes and your hair, your language, then your religion, your way of understanding the world, your culture, yourself. Richard Henry Pratt never had to leave his name behind, become a person he'd never met, never heard of. 
He believed in what he was doing, so proud of his slogan and the progress it represented. Like an advertising jingle, you can't get out of your head. He believed this was progress because all the other white men in the U.S. military at the time wanted to stop after the first phase. Pratt understood there was only one way to deal with his greatest fear, that his charges would go back to the blanket, and he used that fear to shape his mission, one tattered military blanket at a time. Lucky for us, we had one white ancestor who gave us our last name in 17-something, marrying our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, bridging two cultures in one intimate location, running from the rules of his aristocratic family, running to discover life on the wild side. Equally lucky, a reservation school teacher thought Gansevert was too exotic and changed our names and our lives forever with a quick scrawl from her quill pen. She Americanized our name until we suited her taste like real breathing ingredients in her melting pot, so my grandfather got to keep at least his name intact. When he came back and resumed his life on the reservation, as so few other students did. Though he did not stay at Carlisle as long as his brothers and sister, the last photo I've seen of my grandfather hints that the place lingered in his soul. He is an adult, short like me, standing with other members of the Tuscanora community in a group shot, early adopters of basketball by 1920. By then, Carlisle had been shut down, its mission recognized for the genocidal practice, cultural and physical, at its heart. But the photo suggests he is not taking his chances. Most in the group wear uniforms of the sport, running shoes, long socks, shorts, tank tops. Flanking them, he is fully dressed in a three-piece suit, leather shoes shined, and necktie in a perfect Windsor knot. Even here, he seems to fear revealing a wild side, fear the possibility that government agents will return to his door, demand he gather his things, forcing him to get back on the train to Carlisle for remediation. 3. Here is what little else I know, reading records, remembering the slivers my grandmother would speak when she thought it was safe to do so, all those years later. Your job at the school was to start over, be a blank slate, and, because you were a child at the time, it never occurs to you that white children are not stripped of their culture and punished for speaking the only language they know. It never occurs to you that you are not being taught how to be an American, but how to lose yourself. It never occurs to you, because you can't imagine yet having children of your own, that you are being taught systemically to forget so that you have nothing left to pass on to your children when they arrive. You are not being taught how to adapt and survive in America. You are being wiped clean so that whatever reservoir of information you retain will only reference a certain version of American culture, the melting pot that does not melt. And when you open your mouth to teach your children what you know, you discover there is no blanket to go back to. It has been pulled away from you one thread at a time, unraveled as you worked in stables and shops, as farmhands and domestics, until what you hold in your hand is not even enough thread to tie your hair back. It doesn't matter as your hair is no longer a length that needs restraining. 4. I am not one of the thousands of Indians around the country who were led away into one of the 400 boarding schools on a promise they would learn to survive. This is not my direct experience. This is not my parents' experience directly, but we are close enough. I am only two generations removed from that attempt to remove us and make us disappear. Pratt tried to keep my grandparents at Carlisle long enough to drain that reservoir, but they made it back with memories intact, and two generations later, we continue to find those fragments, pick up the pieces, and situate them back in the puzzle frame. 
we hope we can figure out what all the missing pieces should look like so we can rebuild them from scratch. There are fewer of us on the reservation than it seems there should be, if you compare us to the other families, but other Gainsworths live on, knowing nothing of us in Philadelphia and Davenport, Iowa, places my grandfather's brothers landed, knowing they have stayed too long at Carlisle, erasing themselves too fully to ever come home. Five, of the three siblings who could get back, one brother lived in Buffalo, 30 miles south after graduation from Princeton. I have seen photos of him in his dorm room and in later shots. He stands in shirt sleeves with family in a reservation homestead garden before putting on his suit jacket and heading to his own home where he and his wife live out their days having chosen to have no children. The second brother married and had a single daughter spending the rest of his life at the reservation's northern border overlooking Lewiston and across Lake Ontario, Toronto, glimpsed on the occasional clear day, maybe assured that he could absolutely care for one child. My grandfather and grandmother, married in the city of brotherly love, made their way home, the fears and questions their parents had about which children would live at the homestead answered. Like his two close brothers, my grandfather stayed disciplined, minding the number of children he and his wife would bring into the world, minding the names they gave those children, all drawn from family history, some gone, but not forgotten. They raised their three children, my uncle, my aunt, my father, on the same plot of land where the government agent had stepped through the threshold, promising great opportunities for the future. I wonder, as I study every entry I can find, how diligently they guarded the door for the rest of their lives, giving their children the materials to reweave our story, each broken thread mended and tightened until they made a blanket to wrap around themselves, share their warmth until the storm passes. Six, and if this seems confusing, tracing all these generations and keeping the shattered pieces of their story straight, imagine how we do it, retelling ourselves the details over and over, committing them to memory, filling in the missing fragments as we find them along the way. And if this seems confusing, tracing all these generations and keeping shattered pieces of their story straight, imagine why we do it, so that no one can show back up with an opportunity of a lifetime to give us a new life, to help us disappear when our backs are turned, when we aren't looking. Seven, there are recordings of my grandmother made in the middle of the 20th century before I am born. She is speaking to us from the spirit world with the aid of primitive mid-century microphone a crude electric Ouija board, humming and warming tubes and resistors, using mostly the Tuscanora language, occasionally cut with her newer English. Around the same time, she resurrects a talent that lay dormant from her childhood, that stretches back so far, it begins in the time when men were hunters and women were responsible for a family's agricultural life, growing plants and saving seeds for the next year's harvest. She makes corn husk dolls dressing them in clothing she makes from scraps left over from clothes she has made for herself, her family. These dolls she sends into the world to support herself, her family, sold to interested outsiders at events celebrating our culture. But because they are designed for an audience beyond our world, she accommodates. When men were hunters gone for long stretches, they carried dolls with them to represent each member of their family left behind, to keep them company on the lonely task of providing them a future. Women who made them traditionally did not include faces. Some say this was a part of the doll's origin story, a hedge against vanity, if you have too lovely a face. 
Others whisper that a doll with a face might invite a wandering spirit to take up residence behind those features. Either way, when a newspaper reporter composes a feature on my grandmother's creations, the dolls she shows in the accompanying photo have small dots and straight lines arranged purposely into faces on the dried husks. Mathematical notations she was taught at Carlisle. Two decimal points, the symbol for subtraction. She displays these faces, revealing her own tentative smile for the news, for the world, to show she did not harbor quaint ideas about the unseen world. But maybe the whole time, she is thinking about all the wandering spirits of children who did not survive Carlisle, who did not make it home. Maybe she is inviting them into a place not quite the same as the reservation they left, but maybe close enough for now. My grandmother understands the risks involved in her image being recorded. As proof of something not of her making, but she also maybe understands prosperity, that opportunity for a better future can be true this time, and she chooses to imagine us and our futures decades before we came into being, to carry our name forward with the tools and the dreams we have available to us. And that is the end of the section today. I hope you found that section of prose and poetry interesting enough to check out if not there's always another book just waiting to be discovered if you are interested in indigenous people heritage i highly recommend picking up this book and learning it is a very interesting read you can check this book out as a physical book in our library if you need any library card help please let us know we are always happy to assist please check the show notes for some read-alikes I have a combination of some nonfiction Indigenous people's books, as well as some fiction books. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for another Next Reads.